0: All right, you want to get out your Bibles. Hopefully you have a bulletin insert uh, in there. We'll have Jeremiah on it. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read the text first, but we will read the whole thing uh, as we go through it. But uh, let's get started uh, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, once again, we have come before you uh, and are opening your word as something that we so desperately need. We need to know that everything uh, that we receive for faith and for living the Christian life comes from the mouth of the Lord. We need to know that when your word is opened before us, it is the word of the Lord, and we thank you that we are back in Jeremiah, this prophetic book that builds our faith And gives us hope, because it's built on the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and through him to us. So this morning, help us to hear it. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe it. Help us to obey it. And so we pray, speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I have a story for you this morning about Pete and Dan. Pete Davidson is one of the comedians on Saturday Night Live. And Dan Crenshaw is now a new congressman from Texas. And the controversy arose uh, with these two gentlemen uh, in November, around election day, after a segment of Saturday Night Live uh, was discussing political candidates. And they were showing pictures and making what were supposed to be funny comments about each of the candidates. And when a picture of Dan Crenshaw showed up with an eye patch uh, came up on the screen, Pete Davidson said, you may be surprised to hear he's a congressional candidate from Texas and not a hitman in a movie. I'm sorry, I know he lost his eye in war or whatever. Dan Crenshaw lost his right eye in 2012 to an IED in Afghanistan during his third combat tour as a Navy SEAL. This Predictably, there was a huge uproar over Davidson's uh, supposedly uh, joke. And so he apologized in one of probably the more shocking moments of Saturday Night Live history, Uh, and he said, "Uh, I made a joke about Lieutenant Commander Dan Crenshaw, and on behalf of the show and myself, I apologize. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. It was a poor choice of words. Comedian added, the man is a war hero and he deserves all the respect in the world. And then he apologized to Crenshaw face-to-face on the show. And Dan Crenshaw accepted his apology and forgave him and shook his hand and thanked him for making a Republican look good. (laughs) He did, he actually said that. But in the recent past, if those of you, and I actually haven't watched Saturday Night Live in a long time, um, But Pete Davidson has openly talked about mental health, in particular his own mental health, saying he's been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And I'm not going to explain all that, but previously he's written because of other events in his life that he'd been getting bullied online and in public by people for the last nine months. I've spoken about BPD and being suicidal publicly. Only in the hopes that it will help bring awareness and help kids like myself who don't want to be on this earth. He said, no matter how hard the internet or anyone tries to make me kill myself, I won't. I'm upset I even have to say this. And that he was trying to understand how when something happens to a guy, the entire world just trashes him without any facts or frame of reference. But apparently all the criticism did start to get to Pete Davidson. Because about a month later, he posted a grim message on Instagram that said, and I'm quoting, I really don't want to be on this earth anymore. I'm doing my best to stay here for you, but I actually don't know how much longer I can last. All I've ever tried to do was help people. Just remember I told you so, and then he deleted his account. Previously scheduled, Dan Crenshaw was doing an interview on in a local news station in Houston, Texas, the NBC affiliate KPRC. And it was the next day. And so they asked Dan Crenshaw what he thought about Pete Davidson's comments, this grim message on social media. And Dan Crenshaw said after hearing about this alarming post, he picked up the phone. And Dan Crenshaw, mocked war veteran, called to check on Pete Davidson, mocking late-night comedian. And Crenshaw said, it was pretty devastating. You don't want to see somebody in that kind of position to the point where they're actually putting out a cry for help on social media. It's not a good place to be in. We don't go back very far. We're not good friends, but I think he appreciated hearing from me. What I told him was this. Everybody has a purpose in this world. God put you here for a reason. It's your job to find that purpose, and you should live that way. Know that you have value and that you do more good than you realize for people. And Crenshaw added, especially a guy like that, he makes people laugh. Sometimes he makes people mad, but he makes people laugh a lot. And that's what we talked about. It was a good conversation. That could have gone very differently. Rejection and ridicule can be devastating. It certainly was for the prophet Jeremiah. He is now in a season of great rejection and ridicule. And I'm guessing that Jeremiah would have really liked to have someone like Dan Crenshaw call and check on him. But he didn't. And so in desperation, without having anyone else that he could talk to, Jeremiah just pours out his heart before the Lord. And that's our passage today. And so we hear, verses 1 through 4, the complaint of a rejected prophet. The complaint of a rejected prophet. Verses 1 through 4 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. From time to time, Christians find themselves under attack, may be ridiculed uh, for their faith, criticized for their doctrine, are attacked for the way they conduct some ministry. And our first reaction is usually to defend ourselves. We want to stick up for our rights. We want to get mad, or better yet, get even. But Jeremiah didn't get mad. He didn't seek to defend his preaching or vindicate his ministry. He didn't blame God for the messages that he was preaching on God's behalf. Rather, he committed his cause to the Lord. He asked the Lord to take up his case and be his advocate. And Jeremiah's commitment is well-placed because God's already proven his loyalty to him. It's the Lord who revealed that there was a conspiracy against him in the first place. Now, we left off at the end of November. Uh, Frank Wong preached from Jeremiah 11. And Jeremiah 11 tells us, The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds." But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. It was also the Lord who warned him that his own family was seeking to betray him. If you think about this, Jeremiah has the world's greatest intelligence operative working full-time for him the all-knowing God of the universe. And by keeping Jeremiah safe, God fulfilled the promise he made when he called Jeremiah to the ministry all the way back in chapter one. He said, do not be afraid of them for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And so here, when the men of Anathoth are plotting against Jeremiah, the Lord himself sounds the alarm. Jeremiah's commitment is well-placed Because God was committed to him. It's also well placed because of God's character. Jeremiah put his trust in the Lord Almighty, who's all powerful. No one can overcome the Lord, or for that matter, anyone under his protection. Jeremiah put his trust in the Lord, who's the righteous judge. God's decisions are always fair because he always has his facts straight. He tests the heart and the mind. So if you are innocent, as Jeremiah was, God's your best possible judge. The great Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss notes the quiet confidence of Jeremiah's prayer, which begins in verse 3. It says, but you, O Lord, know me, you see me, and test my heart toward you. Voss notes that this is a prayer for relief and unburdening of the soul, such as derives from the simple drawing near to God. Jeremiah's prayer is one of great confidence in God. Prophet has no secrets from the Lord God. And the mere pouring into the ears of God the concerns of the heart bring him calm and refreshment. But, it's always a but. Jeremiah still has a complaint. Go back to verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. In other words, he's saying, could I have a word with you, Lord? Can we set up an appointment or something? I just have a few comments about the way you're handling this situation. I hope you don't mind if I offer some constructive criticism. And then we get the gist of his criticism. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do... Uh, All who are treacherous thrive. In other words, Jeremiah wants to know why good things happen to bad people. And there's at least two plausible but wrong answers to the prophet's question. One way to explain why good things happen to bad people is to say that God's not in control. And that's the easy answer. Because if God's not in control, it's easy to explain the success of the wicked... Their success or failure is entirely due to their own efforts. It would have nothing to do with God at all. But that answer is not an option for Jeremiah because he knows that God is in control. So his answer, equally wrong, is that God must not be good. Since God is in control when the wicked do well, God must be to blame. verse 2, you plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. Jeremiah didn't question God's sovereignty, he questioned God's goodness. He knew that planting and uprooting are God's prerogative. He admitted that the wicked prosper only because God allows them to, and that makes him mad. How can a good God allow the wicked to prosper, even for a little while? I don't know, he must not be so good. And Jeremiah's complaint is actually the reverse of Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, it's the righteous who is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields his fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. But now over in Jeremiah 12, just the opposite is happening. The wicked are well-watered and flourishing, and they're bearing fruit in season, and worst of all, they profess to be believers. Believers. God's always on their lips, but they don't really believe it. End of verse 2. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. They can say the right things, but they don't really believe it themselves. Why would God allow such hypocrites to prosper? Now, this isn't the only place we get these kind of questions in the Scriptures, and certainly in life. And Jeremiah sounds like he's raising the objection probably most famously raised by Asaph in Psalm 73. There Asaph writes in the Psalms, "'Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek.' They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And Asaph's complaint is about the prosperity of the wicked. And he just kept on complaining until he went to the temple to worship. And there, in the midst of worship, he remembers that the wicked are destined for destruction. Psalm 73, verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. <coughs> you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And it was enough for Asaph to know that God would judge the wicked in the end. For apparently, it's not enough for Jeremiah. He heard God promise to destroy the men of Anathoth, But he wants judgment to come sooner rather than later. Asaph was content with God's answer. But Jeremiah continues to complain. He wants God to write the final chapter on human evil right now. Well, I think a lot of Christians feel exactly the same way as Jeremiah. We've heard, we've read in the scriptures, God's going to judge Uh, every deed, whether open or secret, or good or bad. We know that all the enemies of God will be put to shame at the final judgment. Still, we get discouraged by the seemingly triumph of evil in our time. We long for the day when murderers, rapists, racists, abusers, persecutors of the church, perpetrators of genocide, will face divine judgment. In our darker moments, we may even be tempted to ask for the sort of summary execution that Jeremiah asks for. He says, God, why don't you, verses three and four, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, set them apart for the day of slaughter. It's easy to read over those and not really think about what he's saying. What he's saying is, the wicked are prospering, and it would really be better off if you just took them out. You can do that, God, so why don't you? I mean, this is blunt, honest stuff in the Bible, which often happens. So, what's the answer? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the wheels of divine justice turn so slowly? And there's actually some very good answers to those questions, and no doubt, Jeremiah expected to get some of them. When he complained about the slow justice of God, no doubt he expected God to defend his timetable. He expected an answer to the problem of evil, a philosophical explanation of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human depravity. And we're no different. People often demand that kind of explanation from God. And like Jeremiah, we want answers. We want to know why the innocent suffer while the wicked flourish. We want to know why good things happen to bad people. But God doesn't always answer our questions. In fact, God usually doesn't answer our questions. Instead of the logical, well-thought-out, reasoned answer we want and demand, we get the lament of a rejected God. Verses 5 through 17, the lament of a rejected God. You see, God gives them an answer, but God's answer ends with a question mark. And that's God's usual strategy when his creatures try to place him on the witness stand. In the words of the Old Testament scholar, Dr. Derek Kidner, God's answer is never philosophical, as though he owed us explanations, but always pastoral, to rebuke us, reorient us, or reassure us. In the same way, if you remember to the story of Job, when Job wanted to question God about his unjust suffering, God's answer back was a question, Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dressed for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You may not want to put God on the witness stand. Just a word of advice. I mean, Paul posed hypothetical questions answered by the Holy Spirit. In Romans 9, he asked about predestination. The Spirit responded, Romans 9:20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Actually, I think that's a common question, even in our day and age. Lots of people blame God. Why did, why did you make me like this? There's something about me I don't like, so it's your fault. And Romans says, we don't have the right to question God. If there's going to be an interrogation, God's the one who's going to be asking the questions. We don't question God. God questions us. We don't place God under our microscope. God places us under his. So God gives Jeremiah a response. In fact, he gives him three responses. And all of them are variations of, you ain't seen nothing yet. Doesn't actually say that. It's kind of like my paraphrase um, there. So if you're looking, you're not going to find those exact. But, you know, it's like someone comes to me for Counsel some matter, some struggle in their life, and they'll sit down and they'll say, oh, Dr. Dave, I've hit rock bottom. And my knee-jerk response is, oh, no. You're nowhere close to rock bottom. It can get way worse than this. And it might. God will take you very low if that's what it takes to get you to start trusting him. So why don't you repent now and start trusting God now so you don't have to find out just how far down God's willing to take you? Not normally the answer they're looking for. But that is sort of what's happening here. So let's take a look at the first response, you're tired? First response found in verse 5, and it's a question. Verse 5 says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? So, this is lovely uh, ancient Near Eastern imagery, way to make your point. See, Jeremiah, you run along in a safe place and you're just competing against other people. Now, suppose you're called to run against a racehorse. How are you going to fare? You think you've seen problems of injustice so far? My dear Jeremiah, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get a lot, lot worse. Imagine God takes Jeremiah down to the track, lets him run a few races, the 1,500 meters perhaps, maybe followed by a 4x400 relay. And then as Jeremiah's standing on the infield, you know, doubled over in exhaustion, so tired he can hardly drink his Gatorade, God says, and now for the equestrian events. If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? If you get worn out chasing Usain Bolt, how are you going to keep up with Secretariat? And yes, you're battling away in your little small corner of the world, just wait until you have to start fighting in the thickets of the Jordan River. Thickets are like small, low jungles uh, where wild animals and thieves of all types would hide. And people would come down to the Jordan River for water and they'd get attacked. And to sort of put it in an American context, how will someone who falls down on the Indiana flatland ever make it across the Rocky Mountains? You ain't seen nothing yet. In other words, if you barely cope in a foot race in open country against another man, how will you fare in a race against horses or out in the wilderness? If relatively small problems knock you down, what will you do when you face big problems? And in this answer, God is not explaining why wicked people prosper He's saying that if Jeremiah has problems with what he's seen so far, he better face the fact that he ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get a lot, lot worse. Let's move on to a second response. You're abandoned? Starting in verse 6 through verse 13. For even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my heritage. I have given this beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. You have to notice the change here. We've gone in verse 6 from you and yours to verse 7 to I and me and my. Verse 6 is about Jeremiah. Verse 7 and on is about God. You have to notice that change there. It says starting again in verse 8 My heritage has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has lifted up her voice against me, therefore I hate her. Is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go, assemble all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard, they have trampled down my portion. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Upon all the bare heights in the desert, destroyers have come. For the sword of the Lord devours from one end of the land to the other. No flesh has peace. They have sown wheat and reaped thorns. They have tired themselves out, but profit nothing. They shall be ashamed of their harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. So we discover, verse 6, that even your brothers in the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Jeremiah, your own families betrayed you. That is, the people of Anathot, his small village. He says, don't trust them, don't believe them. Even if they speak well of you, don't buy it. They're two-faced and inconsistent. They're not operating with integrity. As for God himself, well, he's the one who's been abandoned, abandoned by his own people. He says, my heritage. He's referring to his own people, Israel. And so Jeremiah's sense of being abandoned in verse 6 is a small reflection of God's sense of being abandoned in verses 7 to 13. Jeremiah, you feel abandoned? You ain't seen nothing yet. What lessons can we learn from God's lament partway through? Well, first, our sins are painful to God. Our grumblings, complaints, rebellions, and arguments are like so much moaning and groaning in God's ears. Because our relationship with God is a love relationship. Our sins wound his heart. And sometimes evangelical cliches shape too much of our theology. Perhaps you've heard this one. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Oh, rubbish. There is a small element of truth in it. And the small element of truth is that God invariably and always and relentlessly stands against sin. Meanwhile, even when he said to hate his people, which he says in verse 8, he says, I hate her. He's also said to love them. So we think of hate and love as antithetical, as opposites. But they're not always. Most of the time in the Bible, they're complementary. Hate in Scripture, like God's wrath, is a function of God's righteousness when defied. It's a function of God's holiness when there's sin in his presence. And for him to remain morally indifferent would not make him superior. It would make him morally imperfect. But at the same time, he's still the God that looks at this fallen, rebellious word. It says at the end, the anger of the Lord. He looks at the world in anger, but then sends his son in love. God's able to hold the anger and the love together at the same time. And so now with a second response, God is saying, that, Jeremiah, if you have problems with these feelings of being abandoned, you better face the fact that you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get a lot, a lot worse. And God's not done yet. In fact, his third response is, you're done? These all come as questions. You're tired, you're abandoned, you're done. God's not done. Jeremiah, you're judging too soon. You don't see eternity. Starting at verse 14. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inhabit. So this is all the surrounding nations that have attacked and hurt Israel. So behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, each to his heritage and each to his land. And it shall come to pass... This is important. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. Jeremiah, you think you're done with all this? God's not done. This isn't the end of the story. Yes, the enemy may come and trample your land. Yes, the enemy may come and take you into exile. But when God has finished using them, he will deal with them. In other words, God may use the Babylonians and he may use the Assyrians, but God is still going to hold them accountable for their actions. See, God's not just the God of Israel. He's the sovereign God over all the nations. And he will hold to account all the other people that he himself has used to chasten his own people. However, look at verse 16. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, that is, God himself now becomes the one by whom they swear to swear by my name as the Lord lives. Notice Lord is all capitalized there. It's using God's proper name, Yahweh. Even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. And once again, there is a vision beyond Israel. To all the nations of the world where there will either be repentance or judgment. And it remains true in every nation that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And every nation is going to need a savior or there is no hope. There's only judgment. So there's Jeremiah's complaint and God's response. You know, Jeremiah's there and he's just done. He's done with this rejection. He's done with this loneliness. He's done with these people. He's done with his enemies. And once again, God is telling him he better face the fact that he ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get a lot, lot worse. So what is Jeremiah going to do? What is God going to do? And what are the people of Judah going to do? It's bad and getting worse. Just what is the hope of a rejected people? What is the hope of a rejected people? See, the lament in chapter 12 is different than everything we've read in Jeremiah so far because here the one lamenting is God. Jeremiah is just complaining. Oh, Lord, I've hit rock bottom. And the Lord's response is, oh, no. You're nowhere close to rock bottom. It can get way worse than this. And I will make it worse if that's what it takes to get you to start trusting me. You better face the facts that you ain't seen nothing yet. So why don't you repent now and start trusting me now so you don't find out just how far down I'm willing to take you. And that's not just true for Jeremiah. Same is true for every Christian. If you complain about the simple things God's asked you to do, then you're going to lack the spiritual strength to do what he wants you to do next. You know, I loved it when I coached baseball. It was years ago. and I about all the, the baseball stories. And um, if you coach baseball players, they make errors. It's inevitable. And there was one team where they actually wrote on their cleats, next play. Because what do you do when you make an error? You put your head down because you, you messed up. And you look down and you see written on it shoes right on the top of your cleats. Next play. And that's something of what's going on here. God's saying, it's time. Get up. You can't just wallow there. There's a next play. If your troubles keep you from doing the Lord's work now, you'll never have the strength to do it later. If you can't do the simple things now, you you won't be able to do uh, whatever he wants you to do next. If you want to do great things for God, you've got to begin with the little things for God. And the only way to do little things for God is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second thing we need to pick up here is no matter what we're going through, no matter how bad it gets, our worst circumstance, a terrible situation, God has already been through worse. God's lament follows hard on the heels of Jeremiah's complaint. You know, he's complaining, these people are conspiring against me. Even his own family sought to betray him. God's been through all that. His household, his heritage, his inheritance, his beloved, they've all roared against him, the text says. God understands your sufferings. Have you been abandoned? Have you been deserted by your spouse? Have your sons and daughters defied you? Is your life filled with ungrateful, hostile people? God understands. He has been through it all many times, and He knows your pain. It's hard to think of Jeremiah facing such a conspiracy without also thinking of Christ. God has sent His Son, Jesus, to suffer and die for your sins. And if God the Father is able to know Jeremiah's pain, how much more can God the Son feel your pain? Like Jeremiah, Jesus was the victim of a conspiracy. The scribes and the Pharisees plotted against him to take his life, Matthew 26. And like Jeremiah, Jesus was betrayed by a close companion, his execution sealed with a kiss, Luke 22. And like Jeremiah, Jesus was rejected by friends and family for preaching in the name of God, Luke 4. Jesus was a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And thus, Jeremiah is one of the prophets who foretold how the Christ would suffer. As the Apostle Peter would later say in Acts chapter 3 but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. But there's one difference. It's a pretty big difference between Jeremiah and Jesus. It's the difference between a sinner and a Savior. Jeremiah asked God for vengeance. God, all these people are against me. Lead them to slaughter. I have to admit, I haven't prayed that prayer. Um, I'm not sure. I've never prayed that prayer, but not in memory. <laughs> um, but Jeremiah is bold. These people are against me. Take them out. Lead them to slaughter. The scriptures don't condemn him for doing that. His case against him apparently is legitimate. But the scriptures point to the greater mercy of Jesus himself. Jesus committed his cause to God without pleading for vengeance against his enemies. When he was accused before the Sanhedrin, we read Mark 14, he remained silent and made no answer. Of course, this was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And even when he's hanging on the cross at Calvary, his words are simple and few. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the mercy of Christ, to suffer and die, but not speak, only to forgive. And the Bible teaches us to follow the example of Jesus at this point, not the example of Jeremiah, as did the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 2 says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who justly, judge, to him who judges justly. You know, there's a reason the Book of Jeremiah is arranged the way it is, and there's so many words of condemnation, and so many harsh things are said, followed by a little hope that just peeks through. You know, Jeremiah was a preacher. He didn't leave his hearers in despair longer than they could take it. So instead, after hammering them, he comes back and surprises them with divine grace. Jeremiah scatters his prophecies of hope like so many shooting stars against the black night of divine judgment. One never knows when the next promise will appear, but it will not be long. Because when it comes to the hope of the gospel and the grace of God, you ain't seen nothing yet. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, as always, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess with shame, Lord, how often we do not take sin seriously, whether our own or the sins of the culture in which we inevitably participate. Lord God, have mercy on us. We confess sometimes our repentance is merely mechanical because we want to secure blessings move past that, Lord. Turn our hearts to you so that we would believe the truth that you are our God, you are our maker, you are our redeemer. Grant that when we confess Jesus, Lord, it will reflect the deepest desires of our hearts. And we thank you, Lord, that even while you were threatening judgment in the past, you promised blessings still to come. And those blessings have come on us in the mercies of the gospel so that we who were once alienated and strangers have been brought near by the blood of your Son. So set our hearts, Lord, to be bold in our age, to weep for the sins of the culture in which we are embedded, in which we participate, and cry for you for help in wrath. Remember mercy. Raise up a new generation of men and women who fear you more than others and who love you more than self. We do not see the end very clearly, Lord. We do not see the intervening steps. We do not know whether you will descend upon us in wrath or mercy. Make us, we pray, faithful where we are in small steps of obedience. Thinking big thoughts of you, but trying to be faithful in our jobs, in our education, in our Christian witness, in our prayer lives, in our resolve to teach your word as we can wherever you place us, in community groups, in Bible studies, with peers, with another generation coming behind, learning how to be faithful. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by our own fears. And work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees and as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with greater faith, a renewed confidence in your word, and an ever-increasing trust in your great and precious promises. And through these things, draw us ever closer to your son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.